Welcome to Antimatter Pod, a Star Trek podcast where we discuss fashion, feminism, subtext, and subspace, hosted by Annika and Liz. This week, we're discussing Star Trek Discovery Season 4, Episode 4, All is Possible. Annika, I went into this episode almost expecting to have to message you and go, hey, I'm not really feeling this season of Discovery. Do we really want to keep busting our chops to put out weekly episodes? Fortunately, I love this episode. I'm so relieved. It was uh, sort of a breath of fresh air, I would say. After last week? After last week. Overall, I'm fine with this season, but it has sort of swung pretty... Like, here's really, really heavy stuff, and then now here's inconsequential stuff, and oh, let's go back to the heavy stuff, and Mm. oh, this happened. (laughs) And now we're playing darts. I'm never going to get over that. Even heavy stuff like grave re-embodying has been played very lightly. Yeah, the tone has been off somewhat. I liked that this had a a completely different tone from everything that happened before. And we were sort of like this side quest that ended up being really engaging. And it feels like, yes, it's a side quest, but it's also going to have a lot of repercussions down the line, which is really Mm -hmm. the best way to tell a serialised story, pulling all these threads and then bringing them together in the long run. We had been speculating for about a week that Tilly was going to leave, and Dawn Ennis, the journalist, tweeted a pretty serious spoiler about it, in that she flagged that she had an interview with the departing cast member and we were like okay everyone in that photo except Tilly is untouchable clearly sticking around and we knew she already had a good relationship with Mary Wiseman so it was like yeah Tilly is leaving and I was really upset I was almost as upset as the day I I learned of Kat's death I was on the train to work and I was angry I was sharing my conspiracy theories that Mary Wiseman was being fired because she was fat and I got to work and I was like biting back tears as I unloaded the dishwasher. And then I had breakfast. You shouldn't have opinions on an empty stomach, it turns out. Very true, very true. (laughs) Or when you haven't had enough sleep, which is when I have opinions. It's amazing how our bodies really need constant maintenance. I wound up coming around to the idea of Tilly leaving and I love the way it happened. I'm not delighted that we've now lost 50% of our female characters from the regular cast. And I think we'll riot if they decide to promote Nilsson to regular status. I maintain they're not going to promote anyone. I kind of agree now, now that you've said that. I'm just going to skip to my final comments here on my things to talk about list. Under random observations, which is that this cast is, we've said before, it's inordinately huge. It really is. There are so many people on this show. The number of regulars is very low. It's like six. But the number of people who show up in most episodes is high. Like recognizable people who are in more than one episode who we know the names of so uh, the bridge crew wasn't in this episode at all no none of them 
uh, even in the hug montage. And I didn't miss them. I didn't need them there. And I'm really glad that they didn't force them. Mm. <laughs> we had no prominent images of Nielsen, for example. <laughs> no. That took away from the focus of the story that was being told. Even Admiral Vance wasn't in this episode. No, he was he off gestating was a mention And was sort of a plot point. That's the level of these non-regular, semi-regulars I want them all to be, including the bridge crew. I want to know about their lives and their feelings and what they're doing, but I don't want them to be annoyingly there, <laughs> to be present for no reason, which is sometimes how it feels. I, I don't know what it is. You would think that a bridge scene where they're in a battle or something, that it would be organic to see the bridge crew, but it's always annoying to me. Yeah. I don't know what it is. It feels like the cameras are lingering on them and we're supposed to get something out of that, that we're supposed to connect in some way by what they're doing. But what they're doing is like reacting to, you know, phaser fire. So I just don't yeah. understand what I'm supposed to be getting out of it. And this is, I think, my main comment you know, at least so far this season i just keep talking about how i feel manipulated mm -hmm. and in this episode even though I, there were still times that i felt manipulated and certainly the whole planet stuff was absolutely a video game mm -hmm. it it wasn't as annoying like i connected to every single one of the cadets except the dead guy <laughs> dead yeah i don't even know who that was <laughs> It's like, there was another one? He wasn't even a cadet. He was a lieutenant. So we don't need <laughs> to care okay. about him. I definitely think that the show feels a bit more comfortable in managing its ensemble than it has in previous seasons. Yes. And also, I think you said that for COVID reasons, they're not likely to replace right. Tilly. Also, they keep insisting that Mary Wiseman is still a regular, even though she's not going to be in every episode. And to me, that means they're probably going to keep paying her. This is going to be like season two when Wilson Cruz was in the credits of every episode, even though he wasn't actually in every episode. And that's great. I'm happy if Mary gets to maintain her income after she's written out. And that means that they probably can't afford to replace her. And that's great too. I will say, I've been saying since last season that it's weird that the whole crew has stuck around and that no one is like, yeah, actually, I'm going to go and get experience on another ship or in another context and, you know, integrate into the 32nd century some more. And so I'm really happy that Tilly has done this. I think it's a really good step for her character. Devastated to lose her. And I hope that she comes back as a regular if we get a fifth season. But this does feel like a good step and an organic piece of writing. My understanding is that the, the writers decided that this is something they wanted to do. It, it was probably annoying to them too yeah. that everybody's stuck on the ship. It's hard to write for this many people and also, you know, maintain the relationships that exist. And so I feel for everybody involved, the cast and the writers, and 
my comments aren't like we should get rid of the bridge crew or we should replace everybody or we shouldn't care about them. My comments are more that if we can do things like this, where we put Tilly in another place for a little while and she comes back again when it makes sense for yes. her to be in a scene, you know, I'm like, at the end of this season, all those people are going to be back. Right. There's going to be a big encounter with the anomaly and it's going to be a thing. Like you said, putting all the pieces on the board and then moving them around and then at the end there's a, a story. But... If you have too many pieces and you can't put them aside, if you can't say, hey, we don't mm. actually need a doctor in this episode, but we're going to throw Wilson Cruz into the scene for no reason, you're creating problems for yourself. You're creating those issues with manipulation and pacing and tonality that I'm reacting to. Right. So... And it's the same problem Voyager had, where they had nine regulars and every single one of them needed a token scene. Discovery has remembered that it doesn't need to do that, and that's fantastic. I think this is a really good choice, and also I cried buckets when Tilly left. But it was good for her. It was. It, good was. For her. it was. And you know who also took time out as a lieutenant to teach at Starfleet Academy? James T. Kirk. And you know who was relentlessly ambitious and never stopped to think about the motivations of his ambition until it was almost too late and then he spent 10 years as a first officer? William Riker. So I don't think this is Tilly stepping away from her ambition to be a Starfleet captain. I think this is her very sensibly taking time to understand her motivations, to change them and to grow as a person and a professional. And she's also getting experience as a leader. Yes. And as a mentor. Yes. She's certainly captaining, just not on a ship. And it, it's a different variety of captaining and authority, but mm. it's certainly still leadership skills. Yes. It's almost not just a step towards being a good starship captain, it's a step to being a good admiral. Because the good admirals that we see, the Cat Cornwell and the Charles Vance, they can also lead from a variety of positions and a variety of roles, and they can act as mentors and guides. And I can see Tilly making a really great admiral someday. That's an excellent point. And then the people who are bad admirals hmm. are, are really focused on their own point of view and on putting their point of view on everyone else. Yes, and not even the people who are bad admirals in the sense of being evil, but the characters who have trouble stepping away from their captaincy roles, like James right. Kirk, as we've discussed. I would say even Picard, and I, I would I was say, say Picard. yeah, I would say Michael Burnham is going to be another of those. Yes, Michael Burnham needs a ship, <laughs> but she keeps on taking responsibilities. She has so many hats. Michael is so. She's amazing. She's such an amazing character with so many layers and so many different... I, I just love her. I loved her so much this episode. I loved her more, yes. more than ever because it was such a middle child episode <laughs> for her. Yes. And she was just taking on more and more and the thing is they keep putting it on her like mm. Vance and Rillick and 
now to Rinna and everybody is like, well, Michael can do it. <laughs> and she never says no. She just sort of jumps in and she's, it's, it's, it's like, it's a train wreck. <laughs> but, but so far she's keeping it on the rails. And so mm. go Michael. It feels like they listened to our episode last week and they remembered that this is Sarek's daughter and Spock's sister and a woman who grew up living and breathing Federation politics. And then they gave us a reason for her distaste of politics and mistrust of Rillick that really made sense to me. It's not a populist sort of, oh, politicians, they're shit, they can't be trusted thing. It's that she was raised by Sarek and... She spent time with Lorca and Ash Tyler and Emperor Georgiou, and she really requires that people be completely honest with her. It makes perfect sense. Yes. And more power to her. But I was just so proud of her, not only making that connection for herself and expressing it, but really like setting boundaries and saying, you know, I want to have a good relationship with you personally and with Federation leadership and with Starfleet leadership. But in order for that to happen, we have to be meeting at this level where I can trust you and I'm willing to do what's necessary so that you can trust me in order for that to happen. Yes. And it was paralleled with her solution for the Navarre and Federation rejoining as well, because it was the sort of the same you know, we have to have external boundaries in order yeah. to trust each other. It was just a really well-crafted plot line for Michael. It also felt like, without hitting us over the head, a, a sign of the time that she has been spending with her mother and learning about the principles of absolute candor. Michael wouldn't go that far. I think she's still very reserved, but... She is honest about her needs and asking Rillick to be honest about her intentions. And I think that's great. I think this is one of the great boundary-setting scenes of Star Trek and also tells us so much about Michael's character in a way that the last few episodes haven't really bothered with. Exactly. This was the Michael that I have been waiting to see. Yeah. I also think it's a sign of the time that she spent away from Starfleet and away from all of those other influences in her year as a courier. She's learned to simply not deal with competing expectations, unclear boundaries, uncertain needs. She's become a lot more straightforward and she has come to understand that she needs straightforwardness in others. Yes. And it, it's also, I think, because she does have book and she has their relationship that is very supportive. Mm. And she has Saru back and their relationship is very supportive. Yes. And in both cases, it's not a codependency thing. It's like we really are supporting each other. And also giving each other space as needed. With Ash and with Emperor Georgiou, it was messy. It wasn't that we know when to support and we know when to step back. It was people pushing boundaries all the time. That yeah. was a big part of both of those relationships. And now, having this relationship with Book and this relationship with Saru, it's not like she hasn't had a relationship with Saru, but it was messy too. 
And now it's reached that, you know, good plateau where they're each other's Bach and Kirk. They can communicate without words. They are very close and level and they understand each other on, you know, a better level than they have. Yeah. And they've both grown, you know, Saru had time away, Michael had time away, and they know what they need and they know who they are. And I think that having those two close, supportive relationships has allowed Michael to feel like she can tell someone like Rillick, who's in authority, who she, you know, butt heads with from the beginning, she can express herself because she knows that whatever happens with Rillick, she still is going to have Book and Saru, and she's still going to have the captaincy, and she's still going to have, like, uh, a foundation yeah built. yeah you compared them to spock and kirk and this brings me back to an observation that i meant to make back in the premiere and forgot but this vibe of having two captains as captain and first officer reminds me specifically of spock and kirk in star trek 6 the undiscovered country where again they have had time apart from each other, but they're a really good team. They are dealing with space politics on a global galactic level, and they really get each other. They're past the point of the push and pull of, you know, the yin and the yang, the logic and the emotion. Mm -hmm. They're a team, and they work in sync, and they can basically read each other's minds. And I love that this is the vibe on Discovery right now because Star Trek VI is my favourite Star Trek movie and <laughs> it was my introduction to Kirk and Spock and everything I saw after that, it was like, yeah, but when are they going to get to that cool Star Trek VI relationship? Yes, all of that. I really just enjoyed the political storyline. It's kind of silly that Navarre would wait until the last minute to drop this bombshell about wanting an exit clause, but... Vulcans love logic and they love drama, and it's actually difficult to say which one they love more. They created a problem in order to solve it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in order to show us Michael solving it. Yes, but I love the idea, or I guess the revelation, that Tarina and Rillick are working secretly behind the scenes to fix to because they know that it's a problem, and they know Michael can fix it, but they're also not going to tell her. <laughs> anything they're just gonna put her in it and be like okay thanks you know last week we were worried that Tarina would replace Rillick and then as I was editing I was messaging you being like but what if Tarina is the evil one and no none of them are evil all of these women are working in good faith to do the best for the Federation and for Navarre and where those entities needs are different they call in Michael to come up with a solution. Literally, call me when needed. It was super fun to me. When she said, we need a committee, I was like, really, Michael? Because I've been on committees and they're not that helpful. But I do think the idea of a neutral party to assess all planets and their relationship within the Federation is a really good idea and something that they could have come up with maybe a thousand years earlier. By we need a committee, does she mean that... There will be a committee of people and she'll be on it and she'll be like the one who's assigned to Navarre? Is that what was being suggested? Or is Michael the entire committee for the entire United Federation of Planets? I feel like it could go either way. 
She said she would have a seat on the committee, which to me means that there will be others, and maybe there are representatives of each planet and their active or otherwise as the situation requires. My experience with committees mm. is that the more flexible and dynamic they are, the more effective they are. Mm -hmm. But I also think that this is kind of a solution that is probably only needed for a few decades while the Federation is going through these growing pains of rebuilding. And I think Michael is young enough and smart enough to step back and recognise the point where the, the committee is maintaining the status quo and it should be disbanded. Because I'm me, I do have to mention that when Chirino was describing the Federation and Navarre slash at the time Vulcan's mm. issues mm. with the Federation, I was like, oh, so it became the Galactic Republic. I get that. I actually keep thinking that if this was Star Wars, they would be calling this new entity the New Federation, like the New Republic, but... You 100% would. <laughs> but that's silly. <laughs> Don't be like Star Wars. <laughs> Especially when it comes to politics. I just think it's so funny because I've always said that the only way that the United Federation can work the way that the Galactic Republic does not is mm. because there's so fewer planets. Like, oh, there's yeah. So fewer people involved in the United Federation of Planets, and they still have infighting all the time. Yeah. Once you get to that level that the Galactic Republic is in the Galactic Senate, it's ridiculous. Those people are yeah. never going to agree on anything. I say this as an American mm -hmm. we only have 100 senators, and they never <laughs> agree on anything. We only have two parties, and they have destroyed the country. <laughs> My history degree tells me that there comes a point where an empire is too large to, to sustain itself, and particularly a democratic empire, if that's not a contradiction in terms, kind of has a size limit, or it needs to do what the Romans did and convert itself into an autocracy, because democracy is hard. Democracy is hard. And this is kind of why I'm almost scared of the Star Trek political drama that I want, because what if they tell us how the democracy works and I don't like it? I personally don't like it. I just want to make my point here that the quote-unquote unbiased committee, because mm. the idea of an unbiased committee or person is so hilarious to me. Like, that's not a thing. And that, that Michael, you know, she says, we're going to have an unbiased committee and I'm going to be on it. And the reason that I am unbiased toward Navarre and the Federation is because I am totally biased toward both Navarre yes. and the Federation. Like, that's what she said. Well, yeah. And I thought that was great. And I loved it. And I was like, oh, so this is the West Wing. But yeah. This particular solution was very... Because the West Wing also, like, doesn't take place in reality. <laughs> No, it is a centrist, yeah. Right, a centrist fantasy. Yes. <laughs> and I say that with love, but I also cannot watch it anymore because, oh my God, have you seen the world today? Anyway, last week you were complaining that we don't actually see Hugh giving therapy. So this week we got to see him with two patients, Tilly and Book. Tell me how you feel. I, I It was great. I was so happy to get that basis again, the foundation. Now, whatever either of those characters does in terms of therapeutic 
reaction or whatever, we understand why they're doing it and why they're attributing it to therapy mm, or yes. why they're not. Yeah. And I am just so pleased. I loved how much they lingered in those scenes. Yeah. This is going to be a ridiculous comparison, but I was watching the 2005 Pride and Prejudice with Kira Knightley. And Matthew McFadden, yes. Which is my favorite. And the best part of that movie, why I love it so much, is that it is so willing to let us linger in the moment. Mm. To let the music and the costumes and the cinematography and the facial expressions and the acting and the words, the writing, live. Every single part is allowed to breathe. And we just stay in moments till you almost think it's too long, but it's actually perfect. Yeah. I definitely saw people complaining that book scenes with Hugh went on too long. I don't no. think that's the case. I think they were great. My feeling is that they broke up the tension of the other subplots, and this is a problem that the series has had basically mm -hmm. since episode one of the fourth season. So, like, that's just an ongoing problem that they're having, and these scenes on their own were fantastic. Right, yes, I agree with that. I can see how... If you're not me and you're not wanting to linger in, mm. in the therapy, or if you're just like super caught up, if you can't switch that quickly and easily from one to the other, I think that while there was a lot of tension in like the Tilly plot, until the end, it, it wasn't a battle. It wasn't, mm. I don't know, it, it wasn't so active that it was a, a real switch for me, but I can absolutely see why it would be and i agree that it is a problem that they deal with but i think it's just a problem of the format yeah if you're yeah. going to be telling this story in little chunks in each episode but also how the story that happens in the episode you're going to end up with this there's going to be clashes of tension and as we've said many many times pacing is not discovery's strength no and they're telling interesting stories in spite of that weakness, which I really, really welcome. I thought Hugh was a really great therapist, and especially the bit where he talks about his uncle's funeral, and then he's like, if I was a proper therapist, I wouldn't be telling you about myself, but we're in this weird space where we already have a relationship outside of patient and therapist, so I think that's beneficial. I thought that was really smart because that is a tension that has always been there in the role of counsellor on Star Trek, that Deanna and Esri live and work and date mm -hmm. alongside their patients. <laughs> yes, but that's going to happen in any small community, even if it yeah, was a, a small town. You know, if you have like 1,200 people in your town and you're only going to have one therapist and yes. that one therapist is going to be going to all of the other places with you you're going to know them that's very so true it's hard. it's hard yeah i can imagine and i do appreciate that he said it and he made it like it was sort of almost like he was setting a boundary you know he was saying this is how therapy is and this is what i'm trusting you with mm. and this is why i'm trusting you with it and that makes him a better therapist than someone who makes up 
personal story or talks about a personal story, but says it was something you read or, you know, it's better to be truthful than trick your patients. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> also, as a bit PSA. Of, yeah. Also, as a bit of world building, I wound up reading about Puerto Rican standing funerals, and I love the detail that Hugh is specifically Puerto Rican. But they're actually a very new development. Like, they've sort of become a thing in the last decade or so. So I love the world building detail that what is currently a new funerary concept is part of the mainstream culture of some humans in the 23rd and probably 32nd centuries. I think that's really cool. I think it's a great bit of detail. And I also love the way that Hugh doesn't downplay it as in any way a sort of weird or niche or non-mainstream cultural practice. The way Star Trek has sometimes done in the past with non-Anglo-American cultural stuff. Mm. And also with religious stuff. Mm. True, because the standing funeral is very, very Catholic, it turns out. Yes. The fact that they didn't add, like, kawaiats to it. To be, yeah. To be like, you know, it's the secular version of the people are allowed to have their their beliefs. Yes. And I, I don't think that we're going to find out that Hugh is Catholic. I would be very, very surprised. But I kind of hope we do because... As a Catholic, I like the idea that the church persists into the future and its practitioners include, you know, lovely gay men in stable long-term relationships with their partners and that they're still practicing and accepted by other Catholics. This is up there with my ongoing headcanon about the Pope sending shitposts to, to Kai Win. The only other thing I want to say here is that I really appreciate that book wasn't fixed after one Vulcan mind meld. Yes. Because in The Next Generation... Oh, I know. 100% would have been. Only Picard is allowed to have long-term trauma. The fact that book acknowledged that it helped, but also that it wasn't enough. Those two things together, that's what I want. Again, I want us to live in this space where we can see mental health care as something that is slow, as something that is poignant, and can go in stops and starts can get messy, can go poorly, and then you pick yourself up and start over again. And acknowledging that, again, I keep bringing up this grief metaphor, but I just think it's important, and especially these days, Mm -hmm. that the grief never is erased. That the trauma is never gone from your life. You just learn how to live with it. You learn how to acknowledge it. You learn how to diminish it, but you don't just erase it. You don't forget it. I I really appreciate when we have these stories where it's like trauma is important and you can't erase it, but also you can't let it rule your life. You won't be comfortable mm. until you acknowledge what's making you uncomfortable. I completely agree, and I'm so happy that this is an ongoing story. I kind of feel like it's time to move Book's Grief to 
a less prominent place in the narrative for a while, which is yes. not to say it should be dropped, but I think we've seen enough of it for now that on a storytelling level we should move on. Well, I have a feeling that someone else's planet's going to get blown up soon, so... We're due for that. We haven't heard much from Greg lately. Uh, I have two more observations before we move on from Hugh as counsellor. One is that I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure that the set for his office is the same one where he has his brief therapy session with Kat in season two and Mm. thinking about that made me realize that he is Kat's legacy her final legacy to the universe is Hugh Colbert becoming a therapist and guiding people through grief and loss and uncertainty and I think that's wonderful that's beautiful (laughs) oh I love that I love the idea that she put him on this path And now he's putting other people on their path. Yeah. We were talking about how admirals lead from different positions to Starfleet captains. And I like the idea that even long, long, long after she's died, she has still made that impact. Do we want to talk about our young cadets and uh, finding your interpersonal skills have atrophied in a time of isolation? Because that is so, so topical. Mm-hmm. When David Cronenberg was like, oh, yeah, these kids don't really know how to interact with other people. I was like, yeah, mood, mood. I work at a university. Of course. Which is pretty much the same age group as Academy Cadets, our freshmen. And we have had many, many discussions about how difficult this year has been our freshmen this year were juniors when COVID hit. And so I really felt for our little Academy cadets Yes, because it's like, I've never been off world. I haven't met any aliens. I don't know how to talk to people. Yes. I don't know how to interact with other cultures that I've never had any exposure to that I maybe not even read about or that I've only read bad things about. Or that my only other experience with someone from that culture was not just negative, but profoundly traumatic. At first I thought these kids didn't seem old enough and mature enough to be Academy cadets, but I was comparing them to like your 24th century, you know, your Wesley crushes, your nogs. Mm. These kids are so isolated and... They've probably known real deprivation. And mm-hmm. yeah, Tilly grew up on a generation ship. So Tilly, Adira grew up on a generation ship. So of course they have very limited experience making friends with other people. And it's interesting and it's a nice touch that Grey does not have that problem. You know, just because you are on a generation ship together doesn't mean you're not different individuals. But the girl from Titan is Sasha Sasha yes she's maybe a little bit xenophobic I think the Tellarite and the Orion have legitimate grounds for conflict at first I thought it was a bit easy for the the Orion to be the son of a great progressive political prisoner and then I realized that was the exact kind of Orion who would be joining Starfleet Academy at the first opportunity (laughs) but also we saw this group of first years be welcomed in the premiere they've only been cadets for about a month or two 
great. It sounds like their trainers and their teachers are sort of at a loss for how to deal with them because they probably haven't been to the academy either. Exactly. They don't have those skills either. They've also lived in these isolated bubbles. Yeah. And at best, we're doing correspondence academy slash federation. Or something like an apprenticeship. It's a very interesting place to be. Hmm. I really love how Discovery is the super, super, super future, but also the frontier. Yes. <laughs> I really like where they've landed at a place where transporters are like literally at the blink of an eye and you can go anywhere and you do it yourself and you have a little mm, personal mm. thing. But also none of us know how to actually talk to each other. And some people have never seen an alien before. I love all of that. It's very, very fun. And I loved my Orion. Your son, so your much. green son. My son, my green son. He is so precious to me. I... I'm just, I, that kid, I don't know who the actor is, but he was able to portray I'm a Orion who's embarrassed of my race, but I'm also an Orion, and I mm. can't not be that, and I'm proud of my dad. There was just a lot of nuance to that character. He actually reminded me of Tendi. Yes. He reminded me of Tendi, and also when I think of Worf in the Academy. Oh, yes. Or even, like, very young, like, first season Worf was in this same position of, like, I'm very visibly Klingon, and some people distrust me, but I also love being a Klingon, but I'm also not really a Klingon because I was raised as a human, and... There's all of this baggage, and I was excited to see that in an Orion because, as we all know, yes. I've been asking for Orion representation <laughs> forever. There was so much potential there, and getting it with an adorable Orion <laughs> kid, I'm just super excited. I love him, and I ship him with all of the others. Oh. <laughs> It definitely felt like the backdoor pilot for the Academy series that has long been mm -hmm. rumoured. And I have to say, I've never been that excited at the idea of an Academy series set in the 23rd or 24th centuries, because the Academy we see there is so sterile and so settled, and it's basically a college drama set in a futuristic military academy. I can see the appeal, but it would not be for me. Whereas mm -hmm. this, rebuilding after a disaster and sort of having to make it up from scratch and, and the templates of a thousand years ago, that's really exciting to me. So if we have Tilly and David Cronenberg leading an academy drama, I would be totally up for that. I forgot David Cronenberg was in this show. And yeah. then he showed up again and I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah, I was like, wait, the Academy drama is going to be led by <laughs> the creepy, like, you know, psychiatrist guy. <laughs> I was very excited. Also, please, please hire me. <laughs> I'm begging you. This is, this is the show I want to write for. I want desperately to write for the high school slash college drama led by the creepy psychiatrist. 
and the bubbly, awkward girl Kirk. 100%. Our timer just went off, so we've got about eight minutes left. But I kind of love that Kovic is back, and when he's dealing with people outside of Zhuzhou, he's actually, you know, pretty nice. Yeah. I like the idea that he and Tilly can be buddies. Oh my god. So good. They're great. like the best awkward buddies. They're so good because they're both awkward and socially outcast but mm-hmm. also outgoing at the same time like they're just they're perfect hilarious besties yes and i want that so badly and, and all of my little cadets who i just adore i'm so happy that you're happy <laughs> that was just so silly but i have one more thing to say about the episode yes it's that Saru and Taruna's relationship. Oh my god! Is not only in our head. The only person <laughs> shipping it more than us is Michael. Is Michael? I loved the way she looked at the tea. Oh my goodness. And that's what I'm talking about when I say, like, they have this great, great relationship. Yeah. Because she could tease him and be playful while also, like, totally taking all of his feelings and the entire situation super seriously and I was just like this is the best I really enjoy Saru and Tarina's relationship but I also never want to see the palms of Saru's hands ever again like happy for you Tarina go for what you want live your dream I don't want to ever see or think about Saru having sex I mean yeah same. <laughs> I, I agree. I don't need them to kiss. They, they're fine with their tea. I am fully on board with their relationship without any physical intimacy because <laughs> they're perfect. You know, it's fine if you want to give it to me, but I'm just saying. I like the idea of, you know, a sexy relationship between two aliens, but happy for the monster fuckers and the xenophiles, but I'm just gonna enjoy it on screen and not think about it further yeah and gray changed his hair he has a body and he can do that he can do that it looks great i've seen ian alexander with this hair yeah yeah he's been wearing it to places it has like this david bowie and labyrinth feel to it which i'm super into mullet anyone who wants to to be a jareth type always lean into jareth always yeah yeah, it's funny because he, he's really not a Jareth type in personality. Um, not at all. <laughs> but I was reading the new edition of the Retooled official Star Trek magazine and it had an interview with Ian. He uses he, they pronouns, which I didn't realise. But he originally auditioned for Adira and they liked his work so much that they took Grey, who was originally conceived as a cis girl and made Grey transmasculine. I think that's really cool. I love Grey. Grey is so important to me as representation. Mm. I really appreciate Grey and Ian Alexander, both the character and the actor. But also, like you said, Grey and Adira have different personalities even though they were on the same generation ship. And Grey's personality is so sunshine, happy, a little bit arrogant, fun. I I just really like Grey and I want to see more 
of that now that he has a body. I'm really, mm. really excited to see him interact with people other than Adira. Yes. I think it's a mark of the quality of the writing for Grey and Adira that you could drop them into Prodigy and they would fit right in with the other 17-year-olds. Mm-hmm. And I know this is something that a lot of people complain about, but I love that we have this little young adult space opera romance happening in the background of the big serious grim dark star trek show yeah why wouldn't you want that my final thing in our last two minutes is do we think this is discovery's last season why why do we think that well usually a renewal announcement goes out within a few days of the season premiere and there's been Mm. nothing so far And in the meantime, we have Strange New Worlds coming. Allegedly, Section 31 is still on the back burner pending Michelle Yeoh's availability. I'm actually wondering if they're bringing Discovery to a natural end and then maybe spooling up a 32nd Century Academy series with Mary Wiseman. That is pure speculation, but it's notable that we haven't had a renewal announcement yet. And I almost wonder if... Ending after a fourth season with the rebuilding of the Federation wouldn't be a really lovely and very earned parallel to Enterprise. I was just going to say, I have noticed the prominence of Enterprise in this season. And Enterprise famously ended after four seasons. And that wasn't the plan. And so it would be a nice... As long as it was what they wanted, I really like the idea of that parallel. Same. Um, And that it wouldn't stop there. And even some of these other characters could do other stuff too. Or they are here and we just get to see them at conventions and stuff. There's so much Star Trek now. I wouldn't... I don't want to say I wouldn't miss them. That's not quite the right thing to say. No. But it would be okay. (laughs) I would be sorry to lose a Star Trek, a live-action Star Trek led by a black woman, but who knows who the main cast of the Alleged Academy series will be, for example. And Four Seasons is a pretty good run in the modern television landscape. My personal preference would be for Discovery to go for five so that we can outlive Enterprise and laugh in the face of the fanboys, but it feels like they're building up to something thoughtful here. It does. I never pay attention to renewal announcements so much, mostly because I'm usually disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) They like to cancel my shows. Yeah. So I will say that television in general and CBS, CBS in specific has been tentative about renewals this season more so than normal seasons. I think this is also a COVID issue. I think that everybody's dealing with a lot. There are expenses related to COVID. There are time and scheduling pieces related to COVID. There are mandates Related to COVID, there are travel restrictions. COVID messes up a lot. Yes. And so 
I wouldn't say that the fact that we haven't heard is like a flag that it's not going to be renewed. Mm. Because I think there are a lot more things to think about than in a normal year. Knowing my luck, they will announce a renewal before this episode goes out. Yeah. And everyone will just <laughs> fast forward through our speculation. <laughs> well, if that happens, <laughs> that's okay too. Yeah, no complaints. Then you get your fifth year. Yeah. And, and you get to laugh in the face of the Enterprise family. I think we should wrap this up, but I have one more question. Okay. If Discovery ends this season, do you think it will be Michael Burnham on the holodeck playing an Enterprise holo novel? No. <laughs> Work with me here. It would be hilarious. That was mean. That was a mean thing to say. <laughs> I, I just freaked out. <laughs> so not likely then. That is so painful. That entire mm -hmm. thing is so painful. Yeah, it's a big no. Big no. Big no. Enterprise somehow was able to rival Turnabout Intruder for worst finale ever in Star Trek. I mean, that's <laughs> fitting because next to TOS, it is the most misogynistic Star Trek. <laughs> True that. Yes. Okay. Thank you for listening to Antimatterpod and our excellent theories about how Discovery will end. I think they're excellent. You can find our show notes at antimatterpod.com, including links to our social media, credits for our theme music, and transcripts of our episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr, all at antimatterpod, and write to us at mail at antimatterpod.com. If you like us, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume your podcasts. The more reviews, the easier it is for new listeners to find us. In about six weeks, we'll be recording our 100th episode and giving away free things for our audience. So, leave a review, let us know that you've left a review, and you'll get something. Probably. It might be a sticker, it might be some actual official merch. Join us next week when we'll be discussing the fifth episode of Star Trek Discovery Season 4. The title hasn't been announced yet, so I'm going to assume it's titled The Revenge of Greg. <laughs> <laughs>